From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. It has been a week. The White House is clashing with Congress over the impeachment inquiry. Protests in Hong Kong took a violent turn. And each day, more barbs are lobbed and parried on social media. Well, we are taking a little break for diplomacy, thanks to the United States Department of State. A group of musicians from around the world continues the tradition of funding arts exchanges with a goal of cultural diplomacy. One Beat is a group of 25 emerging musicians from around the world who collaborate on writing, producing, and performing original music and touring select cities. They are in Atlanta tonight at the High Museum of Art and at Arts Exchange in East Point tomorrow. Well, this year's group draws musicians from Algeria, Mongolia, China, Brazil, Nepal, Cuba, India, and 10 other countries, including Morocco, where Farid Hanam is the singer of this tune. It's called Mimoun. Farid is with us in the studio along with Meng Chi from China, a synthesist, a Cuban percussionist named Rodney Barreto, and a string player and composer, Free Faral, who grew up in New Orleans. Welcome, everybody. Hello. Thank you. Hello. Thank you for Hello. being here. Well, for a bunch of musicians, you sound a little quiet this morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is 25 musicians traveling for the first time in the Southeast. Was this the first time you'd all met? Yep. Yes. We've been in residency together at the Atlantic Center for the Arts for two weeks. That time has been a lot of uh, experimenting and exploring. We were put into ensembles, and then we also f- created our own ensembles through friendships and relationships They were long, long, beautiful days (laughs) uh, where we just put a lot of energy into finding new sounds to make together. So did you come here thinking, like, I want to compose or I want to work with this person, or did it just happen kind of organically, Rodney? Yeah, that's happened organically. Yeah, It's like, um, you know, all of us, I think that we come here for inspiration, connect with new... um, new musician, and beat out a little bit of our comfort area, you know, because normally we play, I think everybody do the same, play with musicians that you already know, and be four weeks with new people that you don't know, so you have to start from point zero, and then everything is going fast, you know, know people, create music, got inspiration, you know, share a lot of things because it's not only music, it's lifestyle, there's a lot of things that we share in those moments. Mung, is this your first time in the U.S.? Yep. So what are your impressions so far? Yeah, people are friendly and there are so many different kinds of beer. (laughs) 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 How did you you get involved with this whole project? I applied for it. So are you a working musician full-time in China? No, actually, I build instrument. Mm-hmm. Oh. And you're also a teacher, right? An educator? Yep. yep. So how does this fold into the way that you look at music, you know, working with people in all sorts of different places and traditions? Yeah, actually, I am very interested in exploring all the different workflows and relationships, the relationship between the musicians and their instrument. Ah, so you all maybe take the work that you're doing here together and go someplace else with it? <laughs> That's the plan. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's possible to do something like this and not be changed like permanently by the experience. Mm-hmm. We've all learned a lot from each other. 
So I'm thinking of that song, Mamoon, which we heard a little bit of earlier. Rodney, um, you're playing a traditional drum kit on that. But Farid, you are singing on this. Um, Farid, vous parlez un petit peu d'anglais? Un tout petit peu. <laughs> Just a little, yeah. <laughs> so you're also playing on, this is a traditional Nawa tune. Nawa music, yeah. Okay. What can you tell us about that? Um, L'origine or l'autre chose de la, la musique de Nawa? Gnawa, okay. Donc, uh, la musique Gnawa, this is old, old music from uh, old Sudan. Old Africa, c'est très, très vieux. Mm-hmm. Very Et, old. Yeah, very, very old. And uh, in Morocco, it's very famous music, and uh, all the Moroccan people like this music. And uh, I'm very proud to play this music because it's not just music. This is history of slaves, uh, history of... Uh, Euh, c'est une histoire de, 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 de vie, une histoire de, de gens qui ont essayé de, de vivre et de, d'arriver à quelque chose. Yes. And how yes. people try to exactly. live their lives. Yeah. Yes. Oui. Voilà. You are singing in this yeah. ensemble, but you are also a, a bit of a star in Morocco. Yeah, in Morocco and in, in Arabic uh, countries because I'm, uh, I'm uh, singing The Voice uh, Season 1 in uh, 2012. Mm-hmm. So you were in the, Ar- let's say, the Arab version of The yeah, Voice. Yeah, Arab which is v- version of The Voice, yeah. Well, we're going to play a little bit of a video of Farid singing a pop song on a very flashy-looking video. Yes, in good experience. Uh, really, I'm um, have uh, two two uh, two careers. What career? One career with uh, the voice and uh, you know uh, big music. stage. But uh, I like other careers like this, like to share music uh, with other musicians, great musicians, uh, and uh, play uh, the tra- traditional and uh, yeah traditional music and trying to create uh, other uh, something uh, good with Gnawa music. So free, and you are uh, one of the um, people from the United States mm-hmm. on this tour. Do you find yourself sort of being the interpreter of culture for people when they're asking questions about what's going on? Um, I have been. It's hard to. There's some things that are so hard to explain. Like to, what? Uh, yesterday, I received a question about like, are there parks so frequently in the United States because we're staying in a part of Atlanta that has really lovely trees and parks, and. Um, this was uh, a fellow from Nepal that asked that question. And I said, well, it really depends on the city. And really, every city is pretty different. And some cities have very little in terms of parks. And some cities are, we have such a huge country. And so it's really hard to explain. And like, I really haven't been everywhere. I've traveled a lot in the States, but I don't know the whole country. So that's also been kind of an interesting challenge is just to be like, well, actually, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, it's a great question that maybe could better be answered by Wikipedia. Um, (laughs) But it's still it's it's still it's interesting also seeing like the questions that come up also in terms of like um, one of the fellows also uh, is from Mongolia and she said, um, she brought up that the only time she'd really heard of Atlanta was in Gone with the Wind. 
and asked me about that movie. And I have a lot of feelings about that movie because of, you know, the view that it takes on the history that it's representing. And it was hard to explain what history I was talking about because she really wasn't very aware of any of it. So I had to kind of like go from the beginning mm-hmm. of what happened to the enslaved African people in this country and what that moment of history that they're representing in Gone with the Wind is about and why that movie is so problematic. Um, and then she was like, oh, I don't like it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, yeah, I think the part of the, the goal here is to get beyond the shiny surface of things, right. right? Understand it well. That is Free For All, who identifies as they, a multidisciplinary artist and composer and string player who is from the U.S. Also with me are Meng Chi. He's a synthesis from China. And Rodney Barreto, he is a Cuban percussionist. And also with us is Farid Hanam, who is from Morocco. They are all fellows for one beat right now, and they're playing around the Atlanta area and around the southeast, actually, in the next couple of days. So on this tour, this is just 10 days that you all are working together in these little pods. So let's hear a track from one of the pods. Rodney is playing the drums here, but the vocalist is Shruti Bave from India and Fani Sahar from Hungary on flute. So you're collaborating with musicians from all over the place. Is music the language that you all speak? As soon as you became a musician, you will know that you begin to speak an international language. It's the same notes for everybody. Yeah. You know, if you don't want to be stuck in one type of music, you're always going to be open to any type of music around the world. Well, the goal here is is diplomacy. The State Department did famously send Dave Brubeck and Louis Armstrong and Dizzy Gillespie to tour the world as jazz ambassadors during the Cold War. And this was is kind of a way of flexing muscle, but it was showing that the improvisational spirit of jazz reflected the free nature of the U.S., Today, that program is less about showing off than realizing the value of exchange. How is that exchange playing out for you in terms of this idea of diplomacy? Um, Yeah, I mean, I think music is in some ways language that is perhaps less fraught with connotation than spoken language and has a potential to reach levels of communication that are different than you can reach with words. Mm. One of the things that has been really amazing about this experience is that we've known each other, all of us, for two weeks. And the other day we were finishing up our recording with my pod and I looked over at Mung and Yanto, who is another fellow from Brazil, and I realized that I'd only known them for two weeks. Like I, It hadn't occurred to me that this was not my regular life for days. It just had become so familiar. I think that there's a depth of intimacy and understanding that is possible to reach through making music together. And I think that part of the diplomacy is also creating relationships that are much deeper than it's possible to create if you're not working with people making something new. Um, and trying to reach a place where you can create something together. 
it, it's funny how uh, American pop music is actually one of the few languages some of us have in common because we have heard all of us some of these songs. The other night we were backstage and there was like one of the fellows from Tunisia and probably four fellows from all over the world singing Bruno Mars <laughs> together on the piano and just having a ball and they knew all the words. That's one way that people can connect is through songs that already exist. But then there's also this other form of intimacy that we can build together in building new things together and in trying to reach each other from all these different starting points and making something new. It could be a reality television show following this group around. Sometimes it yeah. feels like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Well, let's close with the song. I'm going to ask you to say it, if you don't mind, Free, the song that you wrote with Ivy Alexander from Kenya. It's called Bois. Uh, Ivy's playing guitar, and she wrote the chords to this song. And um, I'm also singing, and I wrote the lyrics. And on viola as well? And I'm also on viola. On viola. Well, Free For All, thank you so much for speaking with us. No problem. And also Mung Chi, Rodney Barreto, Farid Khanam, thank you very much for being here and break a leg tonight. Thanks to you. And thank tomorrow. You. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> They're performing in Atlanta tonight at the High Museum of Art and at the Arts Exchange in East Point tomorrow. There's more information at our website, gpbnews.org. It's an amazing collection of fellows this year. You can go and look at all of them, and they're from, what, 25 different countries? It is really something to see. A little cultural diplomacy. Let's make room for that. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. I'm tumbling to the ground But I don't want to feel this way From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Even if you don't know the names Felice and Boudlow Bryant, you know their songs. Dream, 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 dream. Love words, love scars, love wounds, and love. There goes my baby. The song we're going to do right now was written by Boudlow and Felice Bryan about a beautiful spot just out of Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And on February the 15th, 1982, this song was voted by the General Assembly of Tennessee as one of their official state songs. We look back on dear old Rocky Top. The hit-making couple is the subject of a new exhibition at the Country Music Hall of Fame Museum in Nashville. And the town of Shelman, Georgia, celebrates the 100th birthday of one of its own with the Boudlow Bryant Festival next weekend, October 11th and 12th. I'll be interviewing their son, Dell, at the festival, and we'll show segments on Nashville's first pair of independent professional songwriters from Ken Burns' country music documentary. Dell went on to make a career supporting music makers and producers as president and CEO of Broadcast Music Incorporated or BMI, as one of the country's premier organizations ensuring that artists and workers in the industry get paid for their work. He's now retired, but we caught up with him in Nashville to talk about growing up in the home of music industry giants. Del Bryant, welcome. Well, I'm glad to be here. 
First, a little bit on your father's musical education. He started classical violin training at five and winning statewide fiddling contests when he was just a kid. How, how old was he? Well, he was, I believe, 11, 12, and 13. He, he uh, won several uh, championships, or however that should be termed. And, you know, he was accustomed to being down at the courthouse a lot. And there were a lot of buskers and people playing around the southern courthouses. And there were a lot of fiddlers and different little competitions all the time. And Dad saw a lot of music, got an opportunity to play a lot. And, you know, with his classical training and his hoedown training, he became a pretty complete musician. Let's talk about your mom, born Matilda Genevieve Scaduto. She lived in Milwaukee, mostly was raised there, where your parents first met. But but a pretty tough life. Her mother had to pull her out of school in the eighth grade just to, you know, get to work and help the family funds. But she loved poetry, loved to sing. Tell us how she met your dad. Well, mother, uh, during the war, much like everybody else was working multiple jobs. She and her sister were elevator operators at the Schrader Hotel. She was packing bullets at some manufacturing company, and Dad happened, uh, because of some snafu, be out of work in Chicago, where he was a jazz fiddle player, one of the top jazz fiddle players during that period. And he got a, a, a pretty good little sit-down gig with his quartet at the Schrader Hotel. And uh, one night, during a break in their gig that was at the Schrader, he walked out into the uh, lobby and walked toward the elevator, and there was, as quite often the the case is, a water fountain in between it. And as he was approaching her, she saw him coming, and literally has told this story my whole life and her whole life uh, after meeting Dad, that she saw the man she had dreamed of many times walking across the room directly toward her. And he came there, and she said, can I buy you a drink and pushed on the water fountain? And as, as he was bending over, and it splashed him completely and, and kind of amazed him and alarmed her, and next thing you know, she's trying to dry him off and, and at the same time telling him that we're supposed to meet, we're supposed to get married. You know, it was just about that quick. And by the end of that evening, uh, Dad was introducing it to his bandmates as his fiance. And what's amazing to me, this was on the day of my father's uh, birthday. And as it turned out, they are now this year celebrating Dad's 100th centennial. If, if they were here, I'm celebrating it on their behalf. And their 75th year of, uh, of, from the day they knew each other, they'll be celebrating that. We'll be celebrating that on the 13th of February with the Nashville Symphony, in fact, here in, in the city. It is just such a terrific story, and and what came out of that beautiful, you know, in a in a it would great a, make a great rom com meet cute. That is just an adorable story. But they were convinced they should be together after that. They spent some time in the Midwest and moved back down to Moultrie, Georgia, where his parents were. Wrote a couple of songs and had their first hit in the late nineteen forties. Here's Country Boy, performed by Jimmy Dickens in nineteen forty eight. I'm a plain old country boy. A cornbread-loving country boy I raise cane on Saturday But I go to church on Sunday But, you know, when this all comes around And after Country Boy, they moved to Nashville Today recognized as a songwriting capital But when they moved there in 1950 They were the first independent full-time songwriters in the city Now, why did they choose Nashville? 
Well, Nashville in the late 40s wasn't even recognized as even a recording capital. And mom and dad came here because dad's mentor and the first person that they really spoke to in the Nashville community, Fred Rose, invited dad to come up uh, after he had heard Country Boy. Dad showed him a lot of the songs that mom and dad had been writing. They'd written about 80 at the point they they had any success with uh, Country Boy. The song was eventually cut by Jimmy Dickens within the next few months. Fred said, I've, I've got some royalties for you. I've got $400 now. I can send to you, but you need to move to Nashville. I'm speaking with Del Bryant, president and CEO emeritus of BMI, and one of two sons of Felice and Boudlow Bryant, Nashville's first full-time professional songwriters. Del will be in Shelman, Georgia next weekend to celebrate his parents' legacy at the Boudlow Bryant Festival. Well, so they eventually wrote 6,000 songs together, so prolific, and, and made sure to point out that it was a collaborative process. But a little bit about your memories of that. They worked from home. Do you remember any of these songs taking shape? Well, uh, the truth be, Virginia, I remember hundreds upon hundreds of hundreds of them taking shape. Uh, they They did it right at the house. They did it in the living room. They did it. In the hallway, they did it in the kitchen, they they did it out in the yard, they did it later when we had a pool after success, they did it there. I mean, they were in continuous creativity. I'm sure many people who are listening have had those moments when they've created something and there's, that you just buzz, you're so proud of it and you want to share it with people and there's a bit of a, you know, a momentary euphoria. Well, that euphoria surrounded our household 24-7. And not only the euphoria of creating wonderful things, but then the the euphoria on top of euphoria when things would get cut or you'd hear them on the radio or they were becoming hits. So it was such a, uh electrified atmosphere of of acceptance, success, receiving these uh these songs through the ether and and they were doing it all there at the same time that Dane and I were being raised. It was a very close family. They didn't travel. People would say, where would you go on vacations? The only place we ever went was Gatlinburg. I mean, it wasn't like you were planning trips or getting on an airplane. I never flew anywhere with my parents, ever, not once. And they would write in the car. My brother and I have the same memories of songs like Bye Bye Love taking shape in the car during a bit of a rain occasion with the windshield wipers going on. Dad loved riding to windshield wipers. <laughs> nice little metronome there. Bye-bye love Bye-bye happiness Hello loneliness I think I'm Yeah, and uh, it, I don't think my father or my mother were capable of not riding during, during those metronome, as you put it, moments. So I remember so many songs. I remember waking up in the morning with Mom and Dane. We were later risers, certainly in the summer. And Dad would say, I just wrote something. i got to play you guys. And I remember the morning he had written, All I Have to Do is Dream. He had already cut it on a reco cut. We had a disc cutter that would cut the old big black discs, you know, and the, the, uh, the carbon would come off just like spider web, you know, sort of dark purple. But Dad had the disc and played All I Have to Do is Dream for Dane, Mom, and myself. And it was incredible. But my mother said, Boodlow, you could put that out and you'd have a hit. So I remember 
those type moments. Uh, if a song was written early in the morning, it was dad, 100%, like, all I have to do is dream devoted to you, love hurts. If it was written after breakfast, they were both on it. <laughs> and uh, for those uh, occasions when mother wrote something by herself, it was just dad was at a session or dad was buying groceries or, or she was home alone. And the real challenge was to try and remember the melody long enough for dad to get home where she could sing it and he could write it down or, or she'd get crazy trying to find him on the phone at a studio or at Aka Froze and say, and when she'd get him, she said, I have nothing to say. Here's the melody. And she would, you know, hum something out and dad on the other end of the line would write it down about as quick as a steno uh, person would be taking shorthand, you know. So it was it was nonstop, Virginia. We have to pause and listen to All I Have to Do is Dream, recorded here by the Everly Brothers in 1958. Dream, 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 dream when I want you in my arms when I So I was reading in an interview with your parents much later in their career that your father said they were true collaborators. Don't get the idea she was in this subservient position all the time because she made it her business not to be. And Felice said, your mom said, well, it was tough as hell to be a professional woman in the socially conservative South. How did they make that work? Were they equal partners in this songwriting process? They were definitely equal partners. They weren't always equally recognized. Mother was a strong woman. And, and, and vibrant woman of the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and a lot of people doubted her contributions or overlooked them, and that's true of so many people with the exception of my father. They were, they shared, Dad never uh, diminished her contribution. In fact, I think in every interview and when he would be telling people, he said, you know, I probably would be a, a drunk and would have never written anything if it hadn't been for Felice. She definitely kept her little but strong foot on the gas of their career. And that's really, truly what made it work. Dad had the talent, she had the talent, but she had the drive and dad had her. Well, that alcoholism certainly was a tension in the relationship. But I'm wondering if they drew on their own romance, their own relationship as inspiration for their lyrics. I think one of the few songs that's really, the story's been told enough is the title of their exhibition at the Country Music Hall of Fame. It's, it's, it's We Could, which was one of the hits Mother wrote by herself. For his birthday, his 34th birthday, and she was sitting in a chair across from the couch where Dad would like to lie down and work, and they would go back and forth, and if he wasn't playing the guitar, he'd sort of lean back and lie down and rest and listen to what she was doing, and they would sort of kibitz back and forth, and... He fell asleep in the couch, and I still have those chairs and couches. It's, uh, they were rattan. I, I'm very proud of those. And uh, he fell asleep, and she said, I was just sitting there looking at how precious he was and thought, boy, if anybody could really make all of this work, even in the condition we are, whether we're successful or not, if anyone could do it, we could. I love that man so much. And she said the song wrote itself in just moments and just... She, she used to say, I can hardly take credit for this. It just came to me looking at Boudlow. So I think that that, you'd have to say, was an inspired song. But for the most part, whether they were love songs or love hurts type songs or devoted to you type songs or 
Rocky Top or Problems or Bird Dog or you name it. Mom used to tell people, we're manufacturers. We manufacture all day long. The factory doesn't close. And so they were just pushing things out like sausage. It, it, the truth was, though, their sausage was better than Jimmy Dean, and I personally like his. Well, let's hear that song. Here is Charlie Pride's version of We Could. If anyone could find the joy That true love brings a girl and boy We could, we could, you and I If anyone could ever say That their true love To my father, it was about making money. He wanted hits. He knew the key was quantity because they were going to write good songs, they were going to finish them, but Magic visited certain songs and didn't visit others. He knew that the most important song they were going to write was the next one, and then the next one, and that it might take 10, 15, 20 to get one that, that somebody would recognize as a great song. So quantity was their, was their friend. They had to work like maniacs, and I'm most proud that... They weren't just sitting around waiting for inspiration. Dad said, if you're waiting for inspiration and you're trying to be a songwriter, you're doing the wrong thing. He said, it's like writing a letter. When you write a letter, you sit down and think about it to make sure it's a strong letter and you're saying what you want to say. So they were manufacturing songs. They were working hard at it. And any idea, any kernel they got, they you know, went after. And they used to say, a takeoff on an old saying, never look a gift muse in the mouth because they would write anything that started coming to them, whereas so many writers, they'll think of something, write a little bit, and say, oh, no, that's not going to be commercial, and they'll throw it away and start on something else. They didn't know where things were going. The rhymes took them there. The, the moments took them there. The melodies took them there. The, the songs came together, melody and lyric, almost always together. And they just took it wherever it took them, and they made sure they finished, they polished, and then they moved on so quickly to the next song, not not getting caught up or married to any one song more than another. It's amazing to think of what that muse did for American music. Dale Bryant, <laughs> I want to thank you so much for speaking with us. Well, I, I enjoyed it, and uh, I hope the, the folks that listen to this in, in Georgia will come out and see us at uh, Boodle Bryant Day in Shelman. Yeah, he's got so many stories, as you can hear. Del Bryant, President and CEO Emeritus of BMI and the son of Boudlow and Felice Bryant. We'll leave you with Love Hurts. This is the Roy Orbison version, one of thousands of Bryant creations. And there is so much more where that comes from. Del and I will explore it all on stage together next weekend, October 11th and 12th at the Boudlow Bryant Festival in Shelman, Georgia. You can find details at gpbnews.org. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Beverly Guitar Watkins Tatum died earlier this week. She was 80 years old. Her name might not ring a bell, which is probably why a magazine writer once called her the greatest living blues guitarist no one has ever heard of. But Beverly dedicated her life to playing the blues. She grew up in Commerce, Georgia, and landed on the same bill as legends like James Brown and Ray Charles. 
She never got rich playing the blues, but never stopped, which gained her a loyal following, especially in her hometown of Atlanta. GPB's Bill Nygut interviewed Beverly in 2016 and asked her about her very first guitar. So you were eight years old. You got this little guitar as a gift. And then the blues. Yes. And then here come the blues. <laughs> <laughs> and the first song I learned to play was Blue Suede Oh, you can do anything, don't stop on my blue suede shoes. Oh, yeah. After I finished high school, uh, I went um, right as a senior, and I finished Archie. I went on the road playing rhythm guitar with Piano Red. You were a bass player when you started, is that right? Yes. Why didn't that take? Well, we all have gifts, and they don't come overnight. Whenever the Lord gets ready to reveal that gift to you, because back when I played with Piano Red as rhythm, I didn't sing. The vocal, I didn't do any vocals. All I did was stand up there and look pretty and played, you know, played uh, rhythm. (laughs) (laughs) But you were born, God made you uh, to be a lead guitar player. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. I mean, you know... This is the this is my this is what he wanted me to be to do. You couldn't make a living as a musician as an artist for a long time, could you? It was a long time. Yes, it was. How did you make your living when you were already playing with piano red and mm-hmm. out there doing really wonderful things? But how did you make your living? Well, back in I would say back in seventy eight, seventy nine, um, the band broke up. Our group broke up, and everybody went their ways. But I never stopped playing. What uh, what happened was I, I got a job washing cars, but I played on the weekend here in Atlanta. You had a platinum album. But, yes. But it, you didn't see much come your way as a result of that, did you? No, I didn't. What happened? It was divided before it got to me, you know. That must have hurt. It really did. It really did. Now I'm getting a little royalties, but maybe not what I should get. But uh, what I didn't get back then, I'm still going to get. <laughs> <laughs> it was in 1999 when your CD came out. The title of the CD was Back in Business. What did that CD do for you in your career? We went to Paris, France. Uh, we went to Germany, uh, Argentina. Uh, I can just go on and go on, yeah. you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it really brought, really brought me out. Really did. Could you start making a living as a blues artist at that point? Yes. That's good. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. You want to play us out? What do you want to play? What's a favorite? Uh, well, maybe I will do this. Uh, Gospel. Oh, I love that idea. This is about the Lord will make a way somehow. Beverly Guitar Watkins speaking with Bill Nygut for Two Way Street. Beverly passed away this past Tuesday. The interview was recorded in 2016. I know the Lord, He'll make a way. Yes, he will. I know the Lord, 
Tennessee wind. That's the truth, y'all. Acapella Books is a staple in the Atlanta literary scene, stocking antique collectibles along with bestsellers. And the shop is a major sponsor of events with authors. I'll be hosting two of them next week. Podcast host and journalist Malcolm Gladwell, the man who introduced the tipping point to the American lexicon, will be discussing his new book, Talking to Strangers, next Thursday evening at the First Center for the Arts. And MSNBC host Rachel Maddow will talk about her new book. It's called Blowout. It's about the oil and gas industry, and it digs into, among other things, how deeply that industry is tied with the geopolitics of Ukraine. So it's very timely. I'll be speaking with her at the Fox Theater in Atlanta on Sunday, October 13th. Well, earlier this year, acapella bookstore owner Frank Reese and bookseller Emmy Carmichael gave their recommendations for our Southern Reading List. It's our series of authors and readers sharing books that define and reflect the South. I'm Emmy Carmichael. I work at Acapella Books uh, as a bookseller. And my first pick is Treeborn by Caleb Johnson. It's a novel. I've been a big proponent uh, of Caleb's. It's his debut novel since he uh, first released it. Back in the summer, I'd read a pre-pub copy of it and just fell in love. It's the story of Janie Treeborn, who grows up in a small town, Alberta, Alabama. And I, too, grew up in a small town, and so I immediately identified with Caleb's uh, word usage, his turn of phrase. You knew he knew the South. And uh, he also does something that I think is uh, very difficult with writing, and that is tells a story from... Janie's point of view from 1929, then in 1954, and then in present day. The water was coming, but Janie Treborn would not leave. She'd lived alone in this house perched on the edge of a roadside peach orchard in Alberta, Alabama, ever since Lee Malone sold it to her. Sold, maybe not the right word for the price she paid, the price he would take. But it was hers, and she would not leave. Rather, the water take her, too. She'd been telling her visitor exactly how she came to own the house, which once was Lee's office, and before that, his boyhood home. A complicated matter. To tell how this house and the surrounding property became hers, she needed to tell how it became Lee's. And to do that, she needed to first tell about a man named Mr. Prince. See, back then, folks thought Mr. Prince wasn't but a rumor and a last name. She continued, but he was real, lived in one of them mansions down on the river. Uh, She has a grandfather, Hugh, who is a Howard Finster-like character with uh, folk art. Uh, She has a grandmother, Maybell, postmaster of the small town, and it's her death that kind of throws everything into chaos. I look for many more things, big things from Caleb Johnson, and this is a wonderful, wonderful read for anyone who wants to know the South or who has grown up here. I'm Frank Reese, and I'm the owner of Acapella Books in Inman Park in Atlanta, and the first uh, title that I selected for the Southern Reading List is The Futilitarians, Our Year of Thinking, Drinking, Grieving and Reading by Anne Giselson. Anne Giselson is a New Orleans-based writer. I 
met her and heard her read from it. It's basically an account of a year in a reading group. Uh, but this reading group uh, was unique in that they um, were all dealing with personal loss and grief, and they came together to find readings that helped them all pull through that. And it's a beautiful book about the power of reading and uh, sharing reading with others. And it's also a beautiful portrait of New Orleans, her, her native home. Each chapter is a different uh, month and the reading material that they read. So sort of each chapter is its own revelation because for the most part, it's not, not very well-known or familiar pieces of literature that they're sharing. So each chapter has a life of its own. I would say the, the, the through story is more her own family story and the, and the specific tragedies that they've dealt with and the way she portrays them. Uh, it's a very moving story. Well, my second selection is uh, The Fighter, a novel by Michael Ferris Smith. And uh, Michael is a Mississippi writer, and uh, he is of the school. There are a lot of young, predominantly male Southern writers uh, like David Joy and uh, Taylor Brown and, and in the tradition of Larry Brown and, and other kind of rough-and-tumble, uh, good old boy Southern types. And among them, Michael is probably my favorite. I think he just writes beautifully. The door opened, and two women in matching red Salvation Army t-shirts stared down at the boy. Then they looked into the parking lot at the still lingering cloud, out into a gray morning sky. They glanced at each other, and then one said, I guess we're going to have to hang a sign next to the one that says no mattresses, that says no youngins. The other woman lifted the boy and held him up beneath his arms as if to make certain he was made of actual flesh and bone. When she was satisfied, she hugged He also, while he writes about people in a down-and-out uh, part of life or part of the world, um, he writes about him with a lot of heart and compassion. And when, when you read his stories, uh, it, it you can't dismiss these characters uh, as, as beneath anybody. You really are inside them and understand how human they are. And he, he just somehow or another conveys their humanity and his compassion for them in a way that really resonates with me. My last pick is Visible Empire by Hannah Pittard. It is a novel based on the true story of uh, the over 100 Atlantans that were on a trip to Europe uh, to scout out cultural locations and to bring back ideas for Atlanta's cultural scene. And um, the plane crashed on takeoff from Orly Airport in Paris, and there were no survivors. And this book deals more with the people they left behind in Atlanta and how they had to deal with the loss uh, of their friends and family as well as uh, a setback for Atlanta's cultural scene as a whole. Uh, it's very readable, very, uh, it's addictive. It, it, once you start, it simply is addictive. You get caught up with the characters. And even though uh, it is based on a, a tragic, true story, uh, Hannah has done a great job of uh, making the lives of those left behind compelling as well. Frank, I've got to make a confession now. <laughs> a very poorly kept secret is that I often spend a lot of my time 
reading uh, books that we get in. I'm sure those of you who uh, are book readers understand once you start. And so I was about 100 pages in uh, when I found Frank looking at me like, uh, would you like to do some work now or just sit down so you'll be more comfortable? Uh, Anyway, that's and so I took the book home that night and finished it. Uh, So I read it all in one day. Frank Reese there, owner and Emmy Carmichael bookseller at Acapella Books in Atlanta. Music there from Blue Dot Sessions. Acapella Books is sponsoring two onstage interviews that I'll be doing next week. First with Malcolm Gladwell on Thursday the 10th, and then with Rachel Maddow on Sunday, October 13th. You can find more information on both events at our website, gpbnews.org. And let us know on our Facebook group what you think I should ask Malcolm Gladwell and Rachel Maddow. I'll try to incorporate as many of your questions as possible. Drag has gone mainstream. Drag queen story hours are popping up in libraries across the country. RuPaul's Drag Race just won an Emmy. So did gay black actor Billy Porter for his role in the drag drama Pose. Well, that doesn't mean it's lost its edge. A group from Atlanta aims to keep things weird with drag wrestling, which is pretty much like it sounds. Performers dress up in drag and face off in well-choreographed smackdowns. On Second Thought intern Jessica Lowell went ringside for a recent match at the Bakery Art Space, and she spoke to event organizer Taylor Alexander and got to hear some competitors trash talk and brought back scenes of the throwdown in this audio postcard. Tonight is an event where we're combining the elements of drag with wrestling. So people will be performing and lip syncing, but also throwing punches and flipping people over and celebrating the art form that is wrestling and yeah it's just going to be a hodgepodge of queer theatrics i wanted to bring out the inner personalities of all the performers because atlanta has some of the greatest drag performance in my opinion and just give them a really big 20 foot by 20 foot stage to wrestle and show their like talents Saliva Godiva, she's been trying to sell off parts of the Chattahoochee River to those villainous gentrifiers. And I'm here to bring the pollination back to pollution. So we have drag performers, we have queer and trans people, we have black and brown people. We just have a whole bunch of communities coming together for this really different and awkward and funny show. So I wanted everybody who was performing to kind of take something that they that they like really cared about or they could relate to and like camp it up and mix it with drag and wrestling. TJ Maxx, you're going down. And then I'm going to help you back up because I don't want you to get hurt. So we have a match that is a match between the pharmaceutical industry and the retail industry. Your first match and the coming to the stage is TJ Maxx. I originally was inspired by the Netflix series Glow, and uh, it's just something different because I think a lot of people think that drag only happens in bars and nightclubs at late night hours, and drag is so much more than that. And it's it's really it can re- it can really be applied to anything. You know, if you want to do drag tennis, we could do drag tennis. So we are working on a uh, uh, a drag political debate. 
Uh, and hopefully next year, if we are back, we'll kind of tie in a, a drag political wrestling match between whoever is competing for the, the role of presidency in the country. So just really applying ourselves to like different themes that people wouldn't really think that drag could be applied to. She just thinks she's so pretty. She thinks she's so wonderful, but she loves to walk around with a smile on her face, and it's just disgusting to me. <laughs> Those are fighting words. Thanks to our intern Jessica Lowell and organizer and activist Taylor Alexander and all the drag wrestlers at the bakery. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Alexis Thomason and Jessica Lowell. Don Smith is our Dean of Grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. I'm Virginia Prescott, here Monday through Friday at 9 a.m. or anytime when you subscribe to our podcast. Hit the Programs tab for On Second Thought at gpbnews.org to subscribe. Subscribe.